We're going to be in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 61, and then we're going to jump over to 23 later. And this is after Peter has denied Jesus three times and the rooster has crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, he will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. When it was day, the council of the elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Now we're going to jump down to verse 18 of chapter 23. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death, therefore I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Thank you. If you would join me, we're going to pray briefly, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Through centuries, it has stood the test of time, and we give thanks and praise to you for that gift, and we give thanks and praise, God, for the opportunity to sing to you this morning, to sing about your truth, and to find joy in that. Um, Father, for the needs present in our body today, whether those be physical God, whether they be uh, just the challenges of life, the things that are burdening us this morning, God, for the questions that people carry in with them today, whatever it may be, Lord, uh, for the different things in front of us as a body this morning, as well as for anybody who's joined with us today for such a time as this, God, I simply ask that your spirit once again would be present, just echoing what David prayed earlier, uh, that we might find joy in being reminded again uh, that there is a love like no other that comes from your hand. It is unique as we see it expressed in Jesus. And so we pray that that would be abundantly evident this morning. God, not for my sake, but for our joy as a body, as people who you've created, uh, and it would be his glory back to you. In Jesus' name we pray this this morning. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, thank you so much. Obviously, you can be seated. It is my joy to be able to uh, speak to you. A number of weeks back, Jerry told me he was uh, going to be out of town with his family. Isabel's out of town as well. 
And uh, when I asked him what would the passage be, and he told me, and I, I've lost track, I think it's 40 plus verses this morning. I said, do we get to stay until three o'clock and to bring lunch in and do all that? And so obviously we're not going to do that this morning, but it is my joy on this Palm Sunday to be able to share with you. And because it is such a long passage, I didn't even have Isabella read the whole thing in the interest of time this morning. And we're not going to go through every single verse, but to help us this morning, I want to break this into three different parts. And in each of these parts, uh, I'm going to have a word that begins with the letter I. Uh, so for part one, when we're thinking about Peter's piece in the story, we're going to look at identity and ask the question, who am I? Uh, we're going to, in part two, look at interpretation and think about what's your worldview? We're going to have W's this morning as well. In case you just didn't like the ninth letter of the alphabet, we're also going to have a lot to do with the 23rd. So we've got identity, interpretation, and then finally in the third part, we're going to talk about intention. And the question there is, whose will is at work? And so three parts this morning, three different segments of the story. In each one of those, we're going to focus a lot on what I think of as the supporting cast of characters. As we're looking at Thursday night into Friday morning of Passion Week, that's where we are in the story. Uh, although it's Palm Sunday, you may recall it was a number of weeks ago, David Bird actually preached to us from Luke 19 and, and talked about go, weep, and pray. Uh, but now here we are on Thursday night into Friday morning. So we're going to look at these three, as you can see, identity, interpretation, and intention. Along the way, we're also going to, to zero in on one word from each section that I think reveals to us a love like no other. Because ultimately, the story that Luke is telling us, just as the story of all Scripture, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus. He is the one who brings that love like no other. And so that's, I just wanted you to understand this morning, as we do have a big section of Scripture we're going to look at, that's how we're going to break it down this morning. As we roll, first of all, with this first one, identity and the question of who am I, I want to ask you a question. I'm also going to survey you before each section of this. And so here's my first survey question. I'm just going to ask a raise a hand. I'm not going to follow up and put you on the spot to say, tell us more about that, please. But I just want to know, how many of you this morning would say, and I'm not going to talk from the, the external physical side of things, but thinking about the internal. How many of you would say, you are not the same person you were five years ago or 10 years ago? In other words, you've grown, you've changed, things are different than they used to be. Thank you. And I figured we would probably all be able to say that, just as we think about internally. And that is as the world is designed to go. That's how God has designed us as human beings. If you're here this morning, and this is the first time you've ever stepped foot in a church, and you've never heard about God, never heard about Jesus, never heard about the Bible, I would hope you could still say that. To me, it would be scary for a human being to go, I am exactly like I was five or 10 years ago. I think the same way I used to think. I value all the same things I absolutely used to. That would be a little bit off-putting to me because we are designed to grow in this world. I would say created in God's image, that's one of the things that marks us as human beings. And so thinking about that this morning, as we look at the story of Peter's denial of Jesus. It is, for many of us who have been around church a long time, I think a story that's very familiar to us. I just want us to look at it through a different perspective, and it's the perspective of identity. Now, human beings, we all want a durable and enduring identity. We all want that. And as you 
I've spent my life, adult life, in education. Actually, I've spent, I think, my whole life in education as a student and now as an educator. When I think about students all the time, I see this. And whether you're talking to educators or child development specialists or psychologists or sociologists, you could get a lot of different perspectives on what goes into human identity. I just want to boil it down in this way. This is the Scott Berthel definition. Uh, that I think we are all seeking a durable and enduring identity. And really, there's three things we're after in it. We want connection. We all have an emotional need to feel loved, to feel connected to other people, to be part of a community, part of a family. We want acceptance. We want competence. We all want to feel like we can do something that nobody else can do. We want that sense that we're unique in some way, and we've got a gift or talent that we give expression to that nobody else can do it quite the same way. And then third, we want purpose. We don't want to just do these things just to be able to do them, but there's a sense of we want to know that our life makes a difference, that there's something out there, that we're all driving toward these three things, and it marks a lot of why we do what we do in life, as we're going to hear this morning. And so I want us to think about Peter's experience in this passage. So while we're not going to read the entire section, I do want you to understand this begins as we left off Jerry speaking last week, talking about the arrest in the garden. And as we pick up the story, actually, in, in verse 53, the last words of Jesus, he says to all that came, he said, uh, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And then he's brought into uh, the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. And because it's nighttime, the Jewish people, according to their customs, they weren't going to start a trial at night. And very quickly, this, the focus of this story then shifts to Peter. And as you trace through in verse 54 and 55, there, they, there's a fire in the courtyard. Peter makes good on a boast that he had made previously to Jesus. And we're going to take a look at that in a few minutes. But he's followed. Now, he's followed at a distance, but he's still taking quite a risk because he is recognized. Uh, but he's not fully risking it. He's not doing anything to actually aid or comfort or help Jesus in any way. And we see as we trace through this passage that first a servant girl recognizes, says, you were with him. And he says, I was not with him. Somebody else recognizes him and says, you're one of them. He said, I'm not one of them. And somebody else again after about an hour picks up, we're told in Matthew, probably because of his Galilean accent, says, you are one of those guys. I don't know what you're talking about. He becomes progressively more intense in his denials. And then it's the part I want to zero in on uh, comes in verse 61, where we read, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he was told, uh, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, it's interesting to me. Uh, Luke is the only one of the four gospel authors who shares this detail about the look that transpires between Jesus and Peter. And it's that look, that one word is what I want to zero in on for a moment. Before we talk about Peter and identity for a moment, I just want to zero in on that one word, looked. That Luke includes that detail. And I would suggest to you this morning, I mean, sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I like to step back and think about it as though I were a movie director. Now, I've never made a movie in my life, and I really don't know what goes into that. But as best I could imagine it, 
Maybe it's the director saying, no, no, replay the scene like this. Uh, try it again. Do it like this. And imagining a director saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, as you give him the look in this scene, uh, let's go for anger. I mean, Peter said, hey, I'm going to go. We don't want to spill water. Let's put that there. Peter had already boasted to Jesus, I'm going to go with you to prison. I'll go with you to death. And Jesus has told him, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're actually going to deny that you have anything to do with me. And now in this moment, Peter's actually done the denials. We've heard the rooster in the background. You could imagine setting this up as a movie director and saying, Jesus, play it for anger. That somehow Jesus glares at Peter in this look. If I'm directing this movie, I don't see it. I don't see that being what was captured in that look. I could try again and go, ah, that didn't work. Jesus, let's play this for disgust. Kind of give him the, you're probably bound arms behind the back or something, but just give him your, seriously, Peter? Doggone it, I told you you were going to do this. I, ah. A shake of the head. I don't see that. I don't see that. The only look that I could imagine is a look like no other because it's a love like no other. That somehow in a single look, and you and I know this as human beings because eye contact matters to us. I joked with the people in, in the nine o'clock, it would be weird if I stood up here the whole time and just did this and never once looked at you. And it would be weird for me if you did that to me. And you're just like looking around, when is this guy gonna finish? Uh, and never looked because we communicate through nonverbal communication. And eye contact is huge for us as human beings. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what's in that look, but I would suggest to you it is a look like no other because it's a love like no other. That somehow in a single look, Jesus is expressing both compassion as well as hope. And here's what I mean by that. I want to take a look for a second. We'll step back and think about Peter and his identity for a moment. I just want to trace this quickly through the book of Luke and just hit some of the highlights for Peter. You go all the way back to Luke chapter 5 when Jesus is first calling some of his disciples, including Peter. Peter at that point, uh, his, professional, his profession is uh, fisherman. And that's what he's doing. He's tending to his nets usually during the day, going out and fishing by night. Luke 5, Jesus comes along and says, hey, can I borrow your boat? Take me out. i got to talk to all these people. He has a huge crowd following him. And so Peter witnesses, probably already heard about this one rabbi named Yeshua, and now he's seeing this huge crowd following him. After Jesus speaks, Jesus says, hey, let's go out and put out the nets, fish a little bit. And Peter says, yeah, we, we've been out all night. Thank you very much. Didn't catch anything. Probably not, but because you say so, we'll go ahead and do it. And they go out and put down their nets. And if you know the story well, they have this incredible haul, so much that the boat is actually, it can't, can't take the weight of all the fish. And Peter is blown away because when they finally get back to shore, Jesus says two words, follow me. And guys, in this day and age, uh, for a Jewish male like Peter, uh, hearing those words from a rabbi, from a teacher, that, that had passed him by. If you were, as a young Jewish male, equipped with a certain degree of intelligence and ability, this was your dream world, to have a rabbi, 
a well-known one, come along and invite you to be his disciple. That meant you were headed sort of like the rock star, movie star world of ancient Israel. That was the big deal. And for Peter to already be established as a fisherman, it meant that that kind of rock stardom, movie stardom, that was never going to happen for him. He was not one of the elite people. And all of a sudden, for this rabbi who already has a pretty big crowd following him and clearly has something else going on that he could say, throw down your nets on that side and that many fish, I just need you to understand how huge this was. Because again, it at this time, this day and age where we're seeing uh, Peter's life before this moment in Luke 5, his identity is fisherman. What's your connection? Well, it's my other guys that I fish with. What's your competence? I fix nets. I put them down. I take the fish to market. What's your purpose? <sighs> to catch enough fish that I can feed myself. What are you going to do tomorrow? Same thing. What are you going to do a week from now? Same thing. What are you going to do a month from tomorrow? Same thing. You get the picture, the pattern, a year out, decade out. What are you going to do on the day before you die? Probably same thing. And I just need you to understand for a moment how radically this reshaped Peter's identity. It gave him a different connection, a different sense of belonging. And then very quickly, as you start tracing his path through the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, Jesus now says, you're not just my disciples, guys, to an inner core. He says, you guys are actually apostles. And he's established a greater degree of competence for them. Very quickly, chapter 9, you see Jesus sending these apostles and disciples out two by two. They go out and they begin preaching and healing people. And you think again about competence and purpose coming together in this guy's life. Uh, chapter 9 is where Jesus, or, uh, Peter also confesses Jesus as Messiah. John uh, it just keeps going and going. We see all these glimpses. And then when you get to Luke 22, or we go on, we get the transfiguration, we hear about being the cost of a disciple, all these things where it continues to elevate Peter's sense of who he is now as his identity is connected to his teacher, his rabbi, his master, Jesus. And then in Luke 22, there's so much that goes on. Jerry spoke about the Passover meal a few weeks ago, and he tells us about an argument that breaks out around the table about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And although it doesn't name Peter as being part of that argument, the fact that shortly after Jesus has addressed that, he turns to Peter and speaks to him very directly about uh, Simon, Simon. Satan has prayed that I could sift you like wheat. And Jerry's touched on this a couple weeks in a row, the significance of this moment in this conversation. And he says, but I've prayed for you. And I'm praying for your faith. And I'm praying that when you come back, you're actually going to strengthen others. We're watching the arc of this guy's identity growing in its connection to Jesus. And I'd just like to suggest to you that when he's in the courtyard in this moment, and now he's realizing, he's made this great, bold boast that I'm going to go with you to prison. I'm going to go with you to death. He's the only one. All the other disciples have fled. And he's sitting there watching the guy to whom he's hitched his wagon. He's built his identity on this guy for a number of years now who's bound up, about to go on trial. And it seems like 
he's made a huge mistake. And so when Peter all of a sudden sees the look from Jesus after that rooster crowed and it brings him back to that moment, he remembers what Jesus had said and he remembers, I think, that Jesus was praying for his faith and that when he would come back, he would strengthen others. I think Peter was struggling with a lot of confusion in that moment as well as regret over what he had just done because, again, if you think about it, in that moment in the courtyard, he's thinking, protecting his own security because he's realizing Jesus is bound up. We were expecting this Messiah who's going to be buff and strong. He's going to be a king. He's going to take over. And it looks like it's about to all go down the drain. And I don't want anything. I've got to protect myself. And after he's done that and dissociated and disowned and stepped away, he gets that look that reminds him, he really is the Messiah. What have I just done? And he goes out and weeps bitterly. And here's the thing. When it comes to identity, it is as long as we're on this side of heaven or hell, but as long as we have breath in our lungs, blood in our veins, our identity as human beings, we're going to be seeking that connection, that competence, that sense of purpose. It is always in play in our life. It's always being formed and shaped. It's always a part of who we are. And Peter discovered on this night that the only way you're actually going to have an enduring, endurable identity is going to be found in Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to find a durable and enduring identity. As long as we walk on this side of heaven or hell, we are going to be pulled to find our identity in different things. For students, it could be in appearance or what kind of grades or what kind of achievements you get. For adults, it could also be in appearance. What does my home look like? What car am I driving? What kind of clothes do I wear? What are the achievements of my kids? What do I do for a living? And the reality is that for the vast majority of human beings, the things that we're struggling to find our identity in, they're not bad things. They're good things to pursue your education, to pursue different things, pursue a vocation. The problem is when we make those good things into ultimate things, when we make them the master. Peter discovered something, I think, in that moment. The reality that Jesus really was the Messiah. He disappears from the scene in Luke's telling. We don't see him for a few more chapters. But when we pick up again in chapter 24, we see Peter's identity continuing to be shaped. Because when two women come back from the grave and they say it's empty and an angel spoke to us and everything else, and they're telling the disciples... The other disciples, they don't get it. The Bible tells us it was as nonsense to them. But Peter gets up and runs to the grave. He gets up and takes off and goes. His identity was being shaped this whole time to become closer and more connected to Jesus. And he discovered it's the only way he's going to have an enduring and durable identity. A big part of that let me say this, too, before I say anything else. A lot of times when we wrap up here, uh, Jerry speaking, 
David, Isabel, could be one of the elders. Uh, it is our great joy to remind people, and I'm going to do it right here, because a durable and enduring identity is something every one of us is seeking in life, whether we're honest about it or not. I just want to say, if you have never thought about how your identity could be connected or should be connected to Jesus, it would be our great joy to talk to you about that, to answer questions and to help you understand what does it really look like to find your identity first and foremost and only in Jesus, and then once we have that, discovering how everything else in life, the things you put your hand to, your family relationships, your friendships, how you treat the person at the grocery store, your sports activities, your drama activities, whatever it might be, how all of that ultimately comes under the lordship of that one who offers us the way, the truth, and the life. If you've never considered that, we'd love to talk to you. We'll have some elders available this morning to do that. I'd be happy. It would be our great joy. But I just want to make people so aware of the power and value of that. That's identity, and we look at Peter. I want to shift gears and think about interpretation because a lot of uh, identity is connected intimately to interpretation. And interpretation, I'm going to ask the question, what's our worldview? Uh, And again, simple definition that I'm giving you this morning. I'm calling it the assumptions, the biases, the ideas, the values, and so on that guide and govern how we interpret reality. I have a question to ask you this morning. How many of you, am I the only one to whom this has ever happened? Uh, How many of you have ever been at the doctor's office? Uh, Could be an optometrist's office or the driver's license place when you've got to put your forehead on the machine and you look inside the thing to see. Has anybody else ever been uncomfortable because you couldn't read one of the lines? Come on, who else? Am I the only one? Thank you. There's a few of us. Uh, Maybe we're marked of a certain age. I remember years ago, Sally and I were at a movie This is long ago when we lived in Michigan at the Royal Oak Main Movie Theater. And I remember for whatever reason, I squinted with one eye closed. And I thought, that is really blurry. I did the other eye. That's clear. It's blurry. That's clear. Of course, being a card-carrying member of the male club who does nothing about their health, uh, (laughs) I ignored it. Just kind of kept playing with it and going... My sight is really bad that way. Didn't do anything about it until we moved here to the fine state of Texas. And we go to apply for our driver's license. I put my forehead on the thing and I read through the lines. I can't do a certain line. I'm thinking, big as that. And then one eye gets closed and I can't read a thing, not even the first line. And yes, I do have a license, thank you, to the fine state of Texas. So if any of you are wondering, what's he doing? Uh, and I just remember the lady goes, well, you have to give me something. I just kind of go, A, B, C, D, E, because I didn't know. I could not read. Guys, it was stunning for me then when I go through the process of going to the eye doctor and getting glasses and putting these on and doing this and just being amazed. I never had glasses before. I didn't realize, oh, now I don't have to squint. It was amazing to me. And if you can relate to that feeling, you get the sense of the power of worldview. Because in a metaphorical sense, it is the lenses through which we see the world. Is it blurry or is it clear? How do we interpret what is going on around us? And in this next section, I want to take a few moments to look at worldview as we consider the supporting cast of characters, the men who are guarding Jesus, Pilate, Herod, 
the chief priests, the elders, the, the teachers of the law, all the Jewish people here, all the hangers on that are part of this. And we're going to think about worldview. How are they interpreting reality as we walk through this? And we're going to pick this up in verse 63. Before we talk about the worldview of these other people, I want to zero in on one word that to me speaks of that love like no other, more than any other word in this passage. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Now, before we talk worldview, one word that to me captures that love like no other, better than any other word, is we just think about Jesus in this passage. In this whole next section, there's going to be a bunch of verses. I just want you to see this one. And to me, it's the word blindfolded. It's the word blindfolded. When you think about what we're told in this little section, that Jesus began to have people not only verbally abusing him, but physically abusing him, and the significance of that blindfold. During this time of year, Passion Week leading up to Easter, we often focus on the cross and what Jesus endured on the cross for all humanity. And we talk about Passion Week all the way through, and this really, pun intended, hit me in a different way because of that word blindfolded. I'm not going to do this this morning for the sake of verisimilitude, uh, but if I said to Jacob, hey, Jacob, just to show people it's like when a human being hits another, come on up and pop me once. Well, if Jacob came up and I could see him coming, and he actually, and again, we're not doing this, thank you. Um, <laughs> He's going, <laughs> if he came up and I could see him coming and he actually was going to take a swing at me and I can see it, I could at least defend myself. If my hands were bound, I could at least turn away. I have visual sight. I have the ability to respond with my reflexes to absorb a blow. Think about the power of the word blindfolded for a moment because if I... Put a blindfold on. Jacob, you stay where you are. <laughs> but now, all joking aside, if Jacob came up to hit me, I have no idea where he's coming from. Is he in front of me? Is he on my right? Is he behind me? And if he took a swing at me with a fist or a stick, a whip, I have no ability to respond and absorb that blow. I have no ability for reflexes to help protect me. I am completely vulnerable. You think about the power, again, of a love like no other, the suffering that took place. Because one of the things I'm mindful of as I read this, the blows that rain down on our Jesus, Jerry said it well last week when he talked about the cup. Jesus took the cup, and we should be incredibly moved to gratitude because if he doesn't take it, we have to. If he doesn't bear my sin, I've got to bear it. And I think about putting myself into this scenario and being blindfolded. You think about it in sports, any sport. When we talk about the blindside hit, that's the dangerous one for any athlete because you can't see it coming. You can't respond. That's when real pain, real injuries happen. 
And our Jesus expressed to us in that single word, I think, a love like no other, that he stayed in it. We just need to, we need to see that and understand the depth of that. When you think about the worldview, uh, Luke does not tell us who these men were that were guarding Jesus. We get hints in some of the other Gospels. They were probably Roman soldiers. May not have been, but likely. When you think about the fact that Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, they're all part of the Roman Empire, the Roman gods of the day uh, were seen as immoral, capricious. The way the Roman gods viewed human beings at that time, human beings were an annoyance. There was no love from the Roman gods for their people. And mercy was not a concept as a result that existed in the Roman Empire. Weakness was not something that they liked. If a child was sick, you put that child out on the side of the road because weakness could not exist in the empire. To care for the weak, that meant weakness was part of it, and weakness could only weaken the empire. We can't do that. So if you think about the worldview of these soldiers, how they're interpreting reality, they've got a man in front of them. Their whole job at that moment, because of their identity as soldiers in the Roman Empire, identity and worldview are always tied together. It's just to subdue that prisoner. We've got to make sure nothing happens to him. Because if he causes problems or, heaven forbid, escapes, we're on the hook. We see that in the book of Acts when Paul and Silas are in prison. An earthquake happens, the jailer was ready to kill himself because he figured all the prisoners had broken out. And Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't kill yourself. We're still here. Paul understood the way that was all, how worldview influenced what people were doing. It's interesting the way in which worldview guides what we do, and we're going to talk about that in a second. I also want to zero in on something even more significant with worldview. To get at it, we're going to do a very normal thing that happens on Palm Sunday. We're going to watch a commercial for State Farm Insurance. So if this will come up and work, I just want you to see, some of you may have seen this before. If we can go to that commercial real quick, well, if it's possible. I love it. This piece is so you. I know, right? I saw it and I was just like, oh, I have to have it. Is it suede? It's suede. Love suede. State Farm knows that for every one of those moments, there's one of these. Well, I love it. This piece is so you. I know, right? I saw it and I was like, have to have it. Is it suede? It's suede. I love suede. That's why we're there with renter's insurance when things go wrong, but also here with a rewards credit card to help life go right. State Farm. It's, I'll, there's a few of those, but that's my favorite because it's the exact same words. Exact same words for the two women talking about the new suede sofa and the two thieves in the darkness of knife, night talking about the new suede sofa. I love how the lady says with the credit card, I had to have it. And he with his crowbar, I had to have it. Same words, two very different sets of responses to that situation in context. I want you to think about that as we look at these next couple of sections. Because after the soldiers or the men guarding Jesus deal with him, when it's finally daytime, we pick up the story in verse 66. When it was finally daytime, the council of elders and the people assembled, the chief priests and the scribes, they led him away to their council chamber saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. From now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And Jesus 
in a sense, there was speaking code language to them because he's referencing passages like Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 that speak about the future place of the Messiah, that he will be seated at the right hand of God. For the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they would have caught that reference. And they say, are you then the son of God? And he replies, you say that I am. He's saying yes, but I want you to catch something. He's also very much placing the responsibility for that truth back in their court. He's placing it in their hands. He's confronting them with that truth. And then this is where they said, and the reason I put this in bold font, what further need have we for testimony? We have heard it from his own mouth. That statement right there, if you're looking through the worldview of those Jewish leaders at that moment, they're saying that's guilt. He's guilty of everything we've said about him. And yet those same words, we don't find that exact same phrase anywhere else in Scripture. But as soon as I was reading it and thinking about this, it brought mind to a, a place like John chapter 4. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, breaks all kinds of social taboos to speak to her one day. And then she goes back into town. She's a scorned woman, by the way, in town. That's why she's at the well in the middle of the day, not speaking with any of the other women. But she goes back into town, starts talking about Jesus, and I love what's said here in John 4. Many more believe because of his word. And they were saying to that woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. As you look at that on the screen for a moment, again, it's not the exact thing, same statement, but think about this. It's almost like the Samaritans could have been saying to this woman, what further need do we have of testimony? for we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And all these people in the Samaritan village come to faith. In other words, similar kind of language, but it means something so different to the people in the Samaritan village. We go further on. Uh, the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And this is so interesting. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, which is not true. George spoke about this a number of weeks ago, this very moment, and it's very clear that Jesus never said, don't pay taxes to Caesar. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. George did a beautiful expression of what that meant about God's image in us and giving ourselves back to the Father. So they're making up charges, and then they're also playing to Pilate's worldview because they say, uh, he says that he himself is Christ. Now, the word Christ or Messiah, that wouldn't have meant anything to Pilate. But the word king, that would have caught his ears because that's a political term. And Pilate's whole worldview and identity as a political functionary in the Roman Empire, his job is to keep this little backwater region that's full of these uh, cantankerous Jewish people, it's, his job is to keep it quiet, to keep the peace. That's all he's got to do. And to hear that someone's claiming to be a king, that's a problem. And the Jewish leaders knew that, and they present him with that. So Pilate asks him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. And here again, we have one of these State Farm commercial moments. That one statement to Pilate, he backs off and says, I find no guilt in this man. That means nothing to him. To the Jewish 
leaders, that statement when Jesus says, it is as you said, uh, they see that as guilt. Uh, John tracks this through for us in an interesting postscript, I think, in John 19, where when uh, his telling of what happens through the rest of the story, Pilate puts a sign above Jesus on the cross, and it says, the king of the Jews. And you can see how they respond to that, the Jewish leaders. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, they're complaining to him, hey, don't write the king of the Jews. You need to, you need to say that he said, I am the king of the Jews. They're still hanging on to this because of their worldview, how they interpreted reality. Same statement means two very different things depending on how one views it. And I think two things are significant for us as we consider worldview in this section. First of all, that Jesus continues to put it back on the Jewish leaders. He puts it back on Pilate. And he says, in essence, what you're saying is true, but you're responsible for it. You are responsible for it. And as he's dealing with them on that, uh, he's essentially saying, you guys have to deal with the truth of this matter because every worldview must confront truth. We're not unique in one sense in our day and age because the reality is this has been going on since the fall in the garden. But I would say I think we're living in a unique time because we live in a day and age now where the framing of this idea is significant because people like to say this today, uh, I can have my truth and you can have your truth. She can have her truth and he can have his truth. And the difficulty with that is that truth is not malleable. You can't say, uh, I can't say Hey, well, you know, two plus two is four, and Jacob says, oh, it's actually 23. And Kim says, well, no, it's, it's four-fifths. We can't say, oh, that's fascinating, because that's your truth. Four-fifths, I've never heard that, but that's amazing, Kim, that you've got that going on. And we can't all be right. <laughs> truth does not work that way. It's a very simplistic example. My goal is not to entirely dismantle that way of thinking, but I do think as we engage with people in this world, and we're confronted by that now on a near daily basis, well, that's just not my truth. I would say a better way for us to frame those conversations is to say, let's talk about worldview, because worldview is malleable. Worldviews can shape or, or change and shift and be shaped and formed differently but always in response to truth. And I think that's a significant thing that what we're seeing traced through here. If we consider this passage through worldview, these people were unwilling to respond to the truth in front of them. And what's significant about that is that the way worldview and identity always come together to shape how we walk through this world, the decisions we make. And that's our third area we're going to look at very briefly. Uh, we're going to talk about intention and whose will is actually at work. When I talk about intention and will, really what I'm getting at is what's inside of us that guides our decisions. And what's significant to me here is that these decisions both reflect 
our worldview and our identity, but they also shape our worldview and our identity. And we're going to see that very briefly here in these few moments. Quick question for you. How many of you can recall a time in life where maybe it was a difficult challenge and you were just working through that challenge to get to the other side? Maybe it was a goal that you had where there were a lot of obstacles to it, but you pushed through the obstacles to get to the goal. How many of you can reflect on a time in life when you've had that? Come on, tell me you've been there, that you can look back and go, I've pushed through. We do that as humans because we're made in God's image. We're given the gift of a will. We're given the gift of internal strength to do just that. And as we see that lived out in this section, we see the will of different individuals and groups. On the one hand, we're going to see ever so briefly the will of Pilate and Herod as political leaders. We're going to see that in tension with the will of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders and people. We see a a clash of wills. And yet even underneath all that or above that, we see another will at work as well. And as we look at this, I want to pick up this piece of the story. Again, I'm going to move very quickly through here, not reading through all these different passages. But uh, it's interesting that uh, when Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee, uh, very quickly, he goes political. He's already been thinking politically. And very quickly, he thinks, well, I'm going to shift responsibility for this guy to Herod. Uh, Luke tells us a little bit after this that they'd been enemies and he thinks, this is how I'm going to just shift the blame for this, pass the buck for this, and let, let my good friend Herod deal with this one. And so uh, Herod, uh, when Jesus appears before him, Herod just wants to see Jesus do some party tricks, perform a little bit. He's heard all these amazing things he can do. Jesus gives him no satisfaction whatsoever. And as we trace through this passage, we see more of the same abuse. Uh, people are hurling abuse at him. They dress him up in a robe to mock him. And there's this very interesting phrase at the end of this section where Luke tells us uh, that Herod and Pilate became friends with one another after all this. That very day, before this, they'd been enemies, and now they become friends. It's interesting to me because uh, Luke goes on in the book of Acts to help us understand something. Over the centuries, uh, people have argued a lot over who's really responsible for the death of Jesus. Was it Pilate? Was it Herod? Is it the Jews? Uh, Some of these statements about the Jewish leaders, it's it's given rise to tremendous amounts of anti-Semitism over the years because people have blamed the Jewish people for the death. And I think it's interesting in Acts 4 how Luke sets this straight for us as he follows up his gospel of Luke and writes his friend Theophilus to say, I'm just going to tell you everything else that happened after that. And in Chapter 4, he says, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, he quotes from Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And then he explains. This is Peter speaking here. Peter's the one explaining this. He says, For truly in this city, meaning Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. These are some of the kings who were standing together, who became friends out of this thing, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, Peter's very clear to say, there's nobody 
who's not a part of this. It's Herod, it's Pilate, it's not just the Jews, it's also the Gentiles. Everybody's grouped in here. For what reason? To do, in verse 28, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You want to talk about whose will is at work, there's always another will. And it's the will of God to move and to act to bring His ends to happen. I want to look at the love like no other in this section and very quickly zero in on one word. That word is a name. The name is Barabbas because we're also going to see the will at work as we think about the name of Barabbas. We pick up this story back in Luke 23. I just got to, I didn't mark my page. And in verse 17, and some of your Bibles may not have a verse 17, uh, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. Pilate tells the people, Herod didn't find him guilty. I find no reason, nothing. And uh, we're moving on from this. I'm going to, I'll set him free. I'm having punished. And by the way, this is how committed Herod was to keeping, or uh, Pilate was to keeping the peace. He was actually willing to break the law. And uh, he's saying out of one side of his mouth, he's innocent, but I'll have him punished. He says that twice. And what I want you to see in verse 17, he says, he was obliged to release to them at least one prisoner. And the Jewish people all cry out and they say, release to us Barabbas. Again, a name that's mentioned in all the gospels. To me, this is the word that represents a love like no other more than any other word in this third section. Bar means son of. Abba is the Aramaic Hebrew word for daddy or father. Barabbas is son of the father. Lowercase s, lowercase f. And the Jewish people say, that's who we want. He's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. He's been thrown in prison for these things. They say, set him free. Take the one who is guilty and replace them with the one that Pilate has clearly said is innocent. There's this great exchange that takes place. The son of the father, the son, capital S, of the father, capital F, for the son of the father. Again, I think about Barabbas in prison as best I can tell. Possible that where he was in prison, it's possible he may have been able to hear the shouts of crucify, crucify him. And I wonder, did he think, is that for me? When the jailers came and said, get up, come on, you're going free. I would think he's thinking, what? Are they messing with me? Am I on my way to my own death? If there was ever one person in life who could say, Jesus took my place on the cross, <laughs> it's Barabbas, the son of the father who was set free so that the son of the father could take his place. Again, you think about a love like no other, as it says on the front of our, our bulletin today, the unbelievable story of Jesus through Easter week. How unbelievable was that for Barabbas to experience this? And it says to me a lot about Jesus and his decisions. Because one last phrase that I want to look at here, it's the very last phrase at the bottom of the screen where Luke adds this little note, when Pilate has finally said, here's what's happening, I'm going to let him go, and he says he delivered Jesus to their will. I find that phrase fascinating. He delivered Jesus to their will. I find it fascinating because I know how many times Scott Berthel has essentially said to Jesus, Jesus, 
I want you to be delivered to my will. I want you to surrender to my will. And the reality is, as we saw last week in the garden, what we're called to do is surrender to the will of the Father. And Jerry spoke that last week, that Jesus, praying in the garden, sweating drops of blood, says, Father, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus modeled that for us, that we are called to submit to his will. And again, this is a great reminder for me that identity and worldview and decisions all come through together. Jesus knew his identity as the son of the father. His view of the world, how he interpreted reality, meant that he understood the father's will and took that into everything he did and submitted to it. And it moved him to decide certain things, such as willingly taking the place of Barabbas and Scoperthel and everyone in here and everyone not in here. The beauty of these three working together. I'm not a golfer, so it's easy for me to take golf balls and draw on them and uh, mess with them. Just very quickly, I just want to give you this idea to finish. Uh, I drew a D on one of these for decisions, a W for worldview, and an I for identity. These three things are always in play in our life. I'm not a good juggler, so I need a little warm-up, but uh, you could have these three things always in play. And at some point, you're going to, one in one hand, if I end up with the I and I think about my identity, in any given moment, and we don't live like this, I don't go through every moment of every day thinking, what's my identity? But if I stop and think about my identity for a moment, who am I in relationship to Jesus Christ? It's not too long before I'm going to get to things like what kind of decisions do I make and how those are rooted in my worldview. If you stop and pause again and just shuffle the deck, shuffle the balls, whether you actually juggle them like this or not, and these are always in play, always moving, always moving in our life. At some point, got to give a different one, if I end up with the W and I just stop at some point and think about what is my worldview? How do I interpret what happens in my life? It doesn't take too long before I'm going to get to the way in which that ties into my identity and impacts the decisions that I make in life. And one of my goals this morning is that you would see how those three are knitted together. We look at Peter's identity, the worldview of these people involved with Jesus, and the decisions made by Pilate and these others as a reflection of that, but also Jesus. You see, what matters in all this is that our decisions not only reflect my worldview and shape my worldview and my identity, the decisions I make, the decisions you make, the decisions Jesus made, they also reflect and shape and impact what happens in the lives of others. That's true for Barabbas. It's true for you and I. And that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind and always be aware of. I'm going to pray for us. And while I do, John's going to come up. And we're going to move into a time of communion. And when that's done, I will come back up and just share a closing prayer for us as far as one primary encouragement. Um, but if you join me as we pray together. Father, uh, you are the source of a love like no other. And we know, God, through your word, that Jesus is the one who exemplified that as he walked on this, this world. As he got his feet dusty, and engaging with people every day. And Lord, as we 
reflect on that love, how we see it in him, in the way he looked at one of his beloved disciples, as the way he endured so much when he was blindfolded, as the way he willingly sacrificed for a known murderer and insurrectionist. God, may we be encouraged this morning as we hold these elements representing his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. By work of your spirit, Lord, may you renew our wonder, our sense of awe as we behold this man, Jesus, the son of the father who gave his life. So we pray, God, for your presence in this time. In Jesus' name. I invite you to come up and take of the elements, give of offering, and then I'll be back to close in just a moment. <laughs>